0: Let me encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. If you are with us for the first time today, uh, you will not know that we have started a series in the book of Ephesians entitled, uh, Walk, Sit, and Stand, or actually, Sit, Walk, and Stand. It is a takeoff from a familiar book written many years ago by a Chinese believer by the name of Watchman Nee. And it summarizes, I think, in excellent fashion the major themes that go throughout the book of Ephesians, which was written by the Apostle Paul as he was suffering in prison. And we need to get the vision that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are to walk in a worthy fashion, that is, live a life that reflects positively on Christ. And then finally, we are to stand in the evil day for the truth of God in, as we are involved in spiritual warfare. So we now come in our study to Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there in your scriptures. I hope you have a copy of the Bible, if you don't, there is a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can use that and take it home if you don't have a copy yourself. We're told in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. The phrase in verse two, used to live, is again that metaphoric word that is often used in Scripture, walk. It literally says, in the ways you formally walked. The NIV translation gives us the meaning of the metaphor, which is going about your life, the way you do life, the way you live. But I like the metaphor in this section of Scripture Because it has a wonderful contrast with the word dead. You are walking even though you were dead. That seems to be a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Those of you who are familiar with the famous movie, The Princess Bride, that was done years ago will remember that the hero, Wesley, was dead. They decided to take him to a miracle worker in town, Miracle Max, and Max said, no, he's not dead. He's mostly dead. That's different than all dead, he says. I can do something with mostly dead. They said, what do you do if someone's all dead? Then you just go through his pockets for loose change. That's all you can do at that point in time, and I'm told that the scene Uh, with uh, the actors was was kind of an impromptu scene, and many things were added in the moment. It becomes one of the most famous scenes. He's not truly dead, even though he looks dead. It's interesting that that's a biblical concept. There are those who are dead, although they don't look dead, which is the exact opposite. They're walking while they are dead. And so here in this portion of scripture, the Apostle Paul wants to display the almighty power of God through the raising of someone from the dead. Now you need to understand that chapter two uh, is following the point that was made at the end of chapter one. That is, in us, going all the way back to chapter one, verse 19, in us there is this great power which can be compared with nothing. It's incomparable. Our English word hyperbole comes from there. It's beyond measure. Not an exaggeration, but beyond calculation. But what is this great power like? How can we describe this great power? Paul goes on to say, It is like the power, verse 19, of the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and exalted Christ, above all principality and power. So you have the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, which are uh, the demonstrations of God's amazing power. But he doesn't doesn't stop there because in chapter 2, you've also got a resurrection and an exaltation, but it's not Christ he's talking about. It's us. This is also a display of God's amazing power, And the very same power that raised Christ and exalted him is the power that has raised us, if we are believers, and has exalted us. What you have in the early part of chapter 2, the first 10 verses, is a wonderful description of the gospel, of salvation, of the good news that comes from Jesus Christ. But before there is the telling of the good news there is the revelation of the bad news. Before Paul goes to the heights of optimism about God's grace, he must first plummet the depths of pessimism as he uncovers man's sinful condition. So there are two parts in this section. We'll call the first part being ruined by sin. This is man's condition. As for you, and he's referring to the Gentiles. Remember, he uses those pronouns writing back and forth, you and us. He's a Jew, they're Gentiles. That made up the uh, dominant group in the early church, the church at Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So we are, by way of our sinful condition, by way of our human condition, we are dead. That means we are insensitive. We are unable to respond and react as we ought to. But it's not just the Gentiles. Paul says in verse 3, all of us. All of us also lived among them at one time, the sons of disobedience, and were controlled by our own sinful nature. He's describing every person. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the result is we are dead, insensitive, unable to respond. To the goodness and kindness of Almighty God. If eternal life is fellowship with God, then spiritual death is alienation from God, separated from Him, without hope and without ability. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6 has a very interesting verse. It's talking to the church about how to care for those who are widows indeed. Any uh, woman who has raised children, been married, raised children, doesn't have her husband anymore, doesn't really have anyone to care for her anymore, over the age of 60, they had the requirements, that person was called a widow indeed and should be cared for by the church. However, some widows were not living for God, they were living for self. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 5:6, but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while while she lives. So life without God, pursuing sinful pleasure without living for the glory of God is a dead person living. Almost sounds like a TV series. Dead men walking. That may describe the majority of people on planet Earth. You say, but people are very much alive. I mean, think of the athlete with their physical prowess and abilities. Think of the movie star with their vivacious personality. Think of the scholar with their tremendous intellect. Aren't these people alive? Yes, they're very much alive physically, but in their soul, they're blind to the beauty of Jesus and unresponsive to the will of God and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're dead while they live, and just as unresponsive as a corpse. That's the way you were before Jesus saved you, dead. And he goes on to describe this condition by telling us not only were we dead, but we were enslaved by three things. These three things are the world, the flesh, and the devil. He talks about the world first. You used to walk when you followed the ways of the world. You used to live in the ways of the world. The Germans would call this the Sieggeist, the spirit of the age, the culture that dominates, the acceptable philosophy of the times. And all of us used to follow the ways of the world or the course of the cosmos. Oh, this is very much true in our society and it's gaining greater and greater strength. You'll you'll remember that when this country was founded, it was founded by a group of people who respected God and the ways of God. I will not declare that they were all believers, but I will declare that they had some sense of the fear of God and the person of God and his sovereign providence were even written into our founding documents. And listening to the founding fathers and reading their letters, you are convinced that they had this consciousness of God the creator and our responsibility to him. That was the spirit of the age. But the spirit of today's age is totally different. You are mocked if you call yourself a Christian made a fool of, if you believe that the Bible is true. And if you believe that God created every human being who lives on planet Earth, you are an ignoramus. And that's the spirit of the age. And we get intimidated by these things. We used to walk in that same path and in those same ways, being controlled by the peer group around us. Not only that, we were following The ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a very interesting title for the devil himself. The ruler of the kingdom of darkness. The devil has tremendous power. Now, he is not omnipresent, so he has many people working for him to cover the territory of the world. But he's the one who promotes his philosophy in this world. He's the one who controls so many of the intellectuals of the system that dominates planet Earth. This is basically an anti-God system. He's the one who interjects, even into religion, false doctrine, lack of piety. And it's interesting that Paul says in 1 Timothy that we are held captive by the devil, by the devil himself. So the bad news gets worse. We're pressured by society to conform to the ways of the world. We're controlled by the devil, held captive by his will. Now, a lot of people uh, don't think that they're being controlled by the devil himself, but they actually are. He's very content if you'll do his will in a respectable way, as long as it's not fearing God and following the truth. But then we're also told that we follow something else. Verse three, all of us also lived among them at one time, the dead, by gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. The Greek word there is flesh. Sometimes the word flesh refers to the body. Many times it refers to that sinful disposition which is in our heart, our souls. We follow the cravings. Of the flesh. That's what it said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the widow was pursuing the pleasures of life at the exclusion of God. So, following the ways of the world, following the ruler of the air, following the desires and thoughts of our heart. By the way, the flesh is not just emotion, it's intellect. We follow its desires, we follow its thought patterns. And that describes the condition of man throughout the world, controlled by the flesh, conformed to the world, corrupted by the devil. And by the way, for the Christian, these are our three enemies, the enemies that we'll be fighting when we get to chapter 6 by putting on the armor of God. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They're victims of the enemy, and we were once like them, living although we were spiritually dead. But then to make the situation even worse, it says that we are children of wrath. We were, by nature, objects of wrath. Literally, it says children of wrath, which takes us back to the phrase the sons of disobedience in verse 2 those who are disobedient. I don't know exactly why the NIV has pulled away the metaphor again of sons and children, but the idea is we are the offspring of disobedience. We are pursuing the lifestyle that is marked by those under the wrath of God. Here's a concept that is not very popular today, this idea of wrath. We want to do everything we can to eliminate the subject of wrath, and yet it's the other side of grace. We think of someone who is filled with wrath as someone who is out of control, filled with bad temper, motivated by spite, hateful people. And so we project such a view on God when we hear about God's wrath. And because our concept of God can't handle that, we just eliminate the concept of wrath. But our concept of wrath has been forged in this world where the devil controls the intellects. Think of it this way, God's wrath is not bad temper. It is a perfect, settled, hostility, toward anything that is not righteous. To those that would hurt his people who he created to be righteous and enjoy his goodness forever. God's wrath is aimed at evil. God doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't have to raise his voice. He's in perfect composure, complete control but he is angry. I think the word anger is used over 400 times in the Old Testament, and 80% of the time it's used of God. God's angry. He's angry at sin. And his wrath is aimed at those who side with sin. Notice, the people who are dead who are following the ways of the world and the ruler of the air and the dictates of their own sinful nature are called children of wrath. Or think of it this way. John chapter three, we have that great verse, don't we? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves the world. By the way, that means the wicked system The people who are in this world dominated by the devil, the wicked system of the world. He loves the people who are held captive by Satan at his will. But now go down to the end of chapter 3 in John, and you have this verse. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And the wrath of God continues on him. The condemnation of God is settled over him. So the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we are children of wrath and God's judgment is coming. By the way, God has already revealed his wrath from heaven, Romans chapter 1 says. Many people in this world say, I see no evidence of an angry God. I see no evidence that God is even concerned with the way we live no matter how moral it may become, oh, not so fast. Perhaps it is the lifestyle of the individual who thinks that they are totally free to do anything they want to do. The very lifestyle of these individuals constitutes biblical evidence that God's wrath is already being unleashed. For one of the ways that God sends judgment is by letting go. Sometimes God's wrath is spectacular in its demonstration, right? The lightning from heaven, or in the Old Testament, the opening up of the earth to swallow the sons of Korah who rebelled against God. But at other times, God's wrath is simply revealed in his abandonment of people to the designs and consequences of their own wishes. He lets people go. You want to do that? Do it. And you'll live and bear the consequences. By the way, that's a wonderful technique for a parent to teach a child about life. If you spend all of your time protecting your children to the place where they never experience how to make decisions for themselves, they'll be in big trouble when they're by themselves. Sometimes you simply have to say to your child, do you want to eat all that Halloween candy? Is that really what you want? Go for it. You say, but they'll get sick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying be mean. I'm just saying sometimes kids have to learn because they have to endure the consequences because that's how they learn. It's exactly what God does with us. Our world, especially Western civilization, is going through an advance into moral decay at breakneck speed. And it seems like nothing can stop it. There's one thing that can stop it. Genuine revival sent from God. But other than that, I have little hope for this world until Jesus comes. I have hope that the Word of God can reform, and that's why I'm I'm excited to preach it. But part of this decay in our own civilization is simply the wrath of God being revealed and letting go, abandoning man to his own devices. Well, I'm thankful that when we trust Jesus Christ, there is hope. By the way, we talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God, don't we? Isn't that a beautiful picture? The Lamb of God of God. But when you turn to the book of the Revelation, the lamb becomes a lion. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 says the leaders of the earth, the kings of the world, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every free man, every slave, the entire world is going to experience the judgment of God, those who have rejected Him, and they'll call on the rocks and the mountains to cover Him, cover them. But the one who sits on the throne will judge. And it says it is the wrath of the Lamb. So we need to get our Bible geography right. The wrath of the Lamb. If I could have planned this better, a little thunder and lightning about now, (laughs) would have been really good. But God Almighty tells us in his scripture, he's a God of love who loves the ungodly, but he will not. He will not. He cannot overlook sin. His justice and his wrath demand punishment. You say, well, this doesn't sound very encouraging. I didn't intend it to be. But this is where it gets good. Verse 4. But God. If man is ruined by sin, he is rescued by grace. If he is ruined by his own sinful ways, he's rescued by the almighty grace of God. In the original, verse 4 starts out with these two words. But God. I seem to be Criticizing the translation that I enjoy so much today, but I would love it if it just started out, but God. Those two monosyllables reverse everything. They reverse direction from judgment and sin, and they introduce hope and salvation. They change the story from pessimism to optimism, from human corruption to divine compassion. I only heard Dr. Sugden preach one sermon. That is, I was only present for one of his sermons that he preached in a Bible conference. I heard him teach pastors, but only one sermon, and I still remember it today, and it was the sermon, but God. But God. You can go through the scriptures and see how that is used so many times. Man is making a mess of it, but God. We were enemies and rebels running our own sinful course, but God demonstrated his love to us, Romans chapter 5 says. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. God steps, steps in to change everything. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, verse 26, My flesh and my heart are failing, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. And this makes all the difference in the world, but God. Now, I've been talking about some of you who have never been saved. I'm talking about all of us before we were saved, dead and controlled, unable to respond to God, and children of wrath, marked out for judgment. But God steps in to rescue us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. What has he done? What has God done for us? Number one, he made us alive. That is the doctrine of regeneration. That is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. God has introduced new life. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. New life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Read about it in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. We're not saved because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but through the washing of regeneration and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. God steps in and gives us new life. In Ephesians chapter 1, it said we heard the word of truth. We believed the word of truth. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of truth. And that's when God quickened us, made us alive, raised us up. That's the second thing, verse 6. He raised us up. God raised us up with Christ. If we are in Christ, we died with him. If we're in Christ, we're raised with him. And that's exactly what the scripture says. I refer you to Romans chapter 6. These are themes that are repeated over and over and over again. The central tenets of the gospel. Of course, this is the great historical doctrine of the resurrection. And then finally, we are exalted with Christ. This is also verse 6. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. So just as the resurrection and exaltation of Christ Demonstrate the mighty power of God. So the mighty power of God is demonstrated every time he saves a sinner from sin. He quickens them to new life. He raises them in Christ and seats them in the heavenly places in Christ. We go from being dead to being exalted above all the powers of this world. What a transformation has taken place. And why did he do it? Well, let me mention four words that are repeated over and over through this great text. There is love and mercy and grace and kindness. But it's not just enough to mention those. He adds adjectives. So you've got the great love of God, verse 4, because of his great love for us. By the way, who does God love? He loves the unlovely. While we were yet sinners, He loves us. Even though we're caught by the world, He loves us. And then His mercy is called rich mercy. And His grace is called incomparable grace. Verse 7, that He might show the incomparable riches of His grace. There's that word that talks about exaggeration. Not exaggeration, but beyond human calculation. And then he mentions continuing kindness. The kindness that is expressed to us throughout the ages to come. So it's not just that God is good, as we sang a moment ago and that God is good all the time, he's unbelievably good. We can't can't compare or, or, or even comprehend how great he truly is, that his mercy would be extended to us in the person of Christ. And then you come to these great verses. Verse five, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been rescued saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ, in order that in the coming ages, that is, for all eternity, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. God is going to spend all eternity showcasing how kind he can be to us. That's how long it's going to take. And it will never end the riches of god's kindness are inexhaustible we sing amazing grace amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a dead man (laughs) like me yes a wretch how much of a wretch one who followed the ways of the world was under the control of the ruler of the air and was dictated to by every craving of our sinful nature. Now you say, I'm not that bad. Well, there are degrees of depravity. But just because there are degrees of depravity doesn't mean that your depravity is good enough to get you into heaven. I'm a depraved creature, you might say. I'm just not as depraved as someone else. Well, to get into heaven, you have to be perfect. And none of us, none of us achieve that mark. So, the Bible tells us in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. The grace, the salvation, even faith is a gift. We exercise it, but it's a gift from God. Salvation is not our own doing, verse 9, or else we would boast about it. By the way, the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 verse 5 that believing is not a work. Believing is simply accepting what God provides for us. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior, or I die. We contribute nothing to our salvation. And it's not by works or we would boast. But verse 10 says, we're God's workmanship. Notice the contrast? It's not what we do, it's what God has done. It's not working for our own salvation, it's God's working to save us in Christ. And by the way, there's a very interesting word in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word poem. And it means something that is constructed or manufactured. We are God's poem. It's a thing of beauty. He has written it himself. And even though we're not saved by good works, we have been saved to do good works. And in fact, the original language says God has prepared that we should walk In them. There's that word again. And this is why I love the metaphor. It's used in verse 2. We used to walk in the ways of the world. And now with a bit of inclusio, bookending the whole paragraph, he ends in verse 10 with the same metaphor. We ought to walk in good works. Good works don't save us. But once saved, we need to be characterized by good works. We're going to talk a little bit more about that poem tonight. God's workmanship in us. But I wanted you to see it, the whole scheme of things, from being dead to being alive, from being ruined to being rescued, from human corruption to divine compassion because of God's love and mercy and grace and kindness. And that's why throughout all eternity, we ought to be singing with all of our hearts, glory and praise To God alone. By the way, if heaven is God's showroom, where he wants to display his kindness throughout the ages, then earth is God's workroom. And he's still working on his poem, Us, even today. A good author will write a poem, and it'll go through multiple drafts until it is a finished work. A a potter will work with his hands on the clay, spinning it on the wheel, and sometimes work long, laborious hours and remaking it until it is as he designed it. An artist slaves over his canvas until the picture represents his vision. And so God is working on us until he says, come on home. And when we see Christ, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is, for we are God's workmanship. I take you back to verse 14. This is all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, after God has said, I have made you into new people, he's now going to venture into one of the greatest themes of this entire book, how come As new people, we don't get along with all believers. That will be a challenge. And it awaits next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am amazed at your grace, astounded at your mercy, appreciative of your love, and I can't wait to behold your kindness forever. Thank you for those four terms. Thank you for those words revealed to describe how you rescued us. Oh, Lord, I pray even today that we might catch a glimpse of our former self and our present self by the grace of God in Jesus' name.